Uh, welcome everyone for tuning in today. Uh, my name is Leah Wyman. I'm a fourth year student reading um, for a degree in international relations and sustainable developments um, and also the um, student association environment officer um, at the University of St Andrews. And yes, today on the 25th of September is another Global Climate Action Day organized by climate activists from around the world. Um, and yeah, it's the first of its kind that is happening in a global pandemic and during a global pandemic. Um, and I think it's also really important to sort of look where we're a year later, which I'm sure we'll discuss further today as well, because for example, I think this is really significant for us here in St Andrews, because last year on the 20th of September 2019 uh, was one of the biggest climate strikes um, globally um, and definitely also in St Andrews. We formed a line um, in the sand um, of over around 1,200 people. And now a year later, that would be absolutely unthinkable. Um, and yes, the world has changed a lot and has, I think, really laid bare um, our connection bet between human and planetary health. Um, but I also think it's really given us a historic opportunity to reflect on some of the things that's happened that have happened, um, to act and to look to build back better so that we may continue to live on a habitable planet now and in the future. However, I do think we all know that this future will not be handed to us on a silver plate. We have to question it, we have to question how to create it, and we have to really vision and look what, what we want it to look like and then demand it. Um, and that's also why today and over the next hour we'll be discussing the significance of youth climate activism, the complexity of global governance for sustainability and hope in times of crises. I'm particularly excited and honored to be able to introduce you to our guest today, Eric Solheim. Eric Solheim is a well-known global leader on the environment and development, um, as well as experienced peace, peace negotiator from Norway. He's former executive director of the United Nations Environment Programme, as well as undersecretary general of the UN. He has served as a Norwegian Minister of Environment and International Development from 2005 to 2012 and during that time period he initiated the Global Programme for Conservation of Rainforests and brought through some game-changing national legislation, among them the Biodiversity Act and legislation to protect Oslo city forests. He brought Norwegian development assistance to 1%, which is the highest in the world and currently is a senior advisor at the World Resource Institute and convener of the Global Coalition for Greenbelt Road and serves as a CEO of the Plastic Revolution Foundation. The latter is a newly founded initiative that aims to eliminate plastic waste and pollution beginning in Accra, Ghana. With that, all that being said, thank you so much, Eric, for agreeing to, for, to the interview today and joining us virtually here in St Andrews in Scotland. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be with uh, so many great students from a university I have never visited but heard a lot about. Yes, yeah, so let's let's dive right in and and see what when you're looking at seeing at the global movement of youth climate strikes and activism in the last year, what what do you think has has been the significance of it or has it been significant at all? Absolutely. I think the student strikes and the role played by people like uh, Greta Thunberg, by, by so many others, millions of others, have had huge significance. It really moved uh, climate from very low on the global agenda to the top spot on the global political agenda. However, where we see most action now is with business 
uh, not so much with politics, but also in politics, there is huge progress. Um, so why then do you think that despite this, um, some of like we're seeing so so little global political changes, even though, you know, there's such a big movement to, to push for that change? I tend to disagree with the view that there is little political uh, movement. There should be more. Uh, speed is not high enough. But just just look to the last week. There have been two major developments just this week. One was the promise by President Xi Jinping of China in a speech to the UN General Assembly, where he said that China will peak its emission before 2030 and it will go carbon neutral by 2060. It may seem as uh, somewhat vague, but I think we, when we have seen the ability of China to turn around based on political decisions, we should expect China to, uh, uh, to work on this. And it will have an enormous impact because China is the biggest economy in the world, depending on how you measure. It's the biggest emitter in the world. Uh, and they are number one on solar energy, high speed rail, wind energy, basically on any environment technology. China is now number one. Same week, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the head of the European Commission, made a so called State of the Union speech to the European Parliament. And it was all about the environment. Uh, that was the main focus of the speech, the main pro uh, promises on the speech, and the EU leaders now basically see the green issues as the way to uh, rescue the European project. Uh, so we see main political movement both in Europe and in China. In the US there is little political movement, but there is a lot of movement from business. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's always that balance between um, having action sort of words and people being interested and then facing the reality of I guess often of um, the science and us saying well we need so much more and we need action but I guess what would you then say to to climate activists in terms of like getting our voices heard to politicians and to further push this global movement? You must continue to push and push and push because without uh, a public opinion which is demanding change from political leaders and business uh, nothing will happen. However, please don't be discouraged because look to what, what is happening now. Two weeks back, Exxon was dismissed from the Dow Jones index in, the, in, the, in New York. And the people there said, thank you, Exxon. You have been with us for 85 years. You have been one of the pillars of New York Stock Exchange. Now, you are not, you are not significant enough for us. We, we take in a sales force, which is, of course, a California-based cloud company. Uh, by the way, led by a person who is very opposed to President Trump in the United States, uh, which came in uh, as the replacement for Exxon. And all the five tech companies of Western, the West Coast of the United States, Google, Microsoft, Apple, all of them, now individually have a higher stock exchange value than all the 76 extractive <laughs> energy companies combined. And when you add Exxon and Chevron and all of them, and still 76 such companies don't have the value of Microsoft uh, or Apple. And then, of course, the very positive development is all these five companies have made major climate uh, promises, made promises which are far ahead of any state anywhere in the world. Microsoft, for instance, they have promised uh, that they will be carbon neutral. Adding to that, they have promised that they will they will compensate for all emissions in the history of, of Microsoft from 1970s onwards. Adding to that, they just also promised that by 2030, there will be a zero waste company, not pushing any plastic or any other waste out of the company to the world uh, beyond Microsoft. Google, 
similar promises. Uh, Amazon may be not so advanced, but at least in the range of promising to buy 100,000 electrical uh, carry cars uh, for their goods. So uh, a lot is happening and business is in the lead. And of course, at the end of the day, it's in business that most of the change will have to happen. Yeah, that's I, I think I was just as you were going um, speaking about business, I was thinking, um, yeah, what do you how do you think what do you think think is the role of, I guess, business and, and economy? Do you think there could really be a turning point in um, actual corporations taking lead um, in climate change and pushing then pushing that through government as well? There is a huge shift and we know from history that change is very slow until all of a sudden it's very fast. And that's the point we are now. I'm, true uh, prom, prom, uh, progress on climate has been slow. Now it's taking off in a completely new uh, scale. Take my own nation, Norway. I'm, I'm a close friend of one of the biggest business leaders in Norway, Mr. Röcke. He has a company. Over the summer, he decided that now it's time to move from a focus on our heavy focus on oil into renewables. And all of a sudden, his renewable companies, who still has less than 100 employees, no actual business, are more valuable than the oil, uh, 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 the oil service company. It's a 15,000 employees and a lot of business. Uh, and if you look to what has happened during COVID-19, globally, the number one winners on all stock exchanges are renewable companies and the number one losers are oil service companies. So don't underestimate this shift because it's when shift takes this speed and this determination, then, then it's happening very, very fast. So then, yeah, that's, 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 that's positive, inspiring news to hear. But then what would you say, um, like the biggest challenges that's still going forward with regards to um, climate action, sustainability? The biggest challenge is, uh, challenge is very simple. We are in a hurry. Uh, we, we cannot wait uh, because, I mean, we, we have definitely turned the point in human history where we are moving in the right direction. I mean, everyone understands that the future is renewable. I mean, it's very, very clear that late in this century, ne nearly all energy on the planet will be renewable energy. The price of solar can now compete with coal everywhere in the world. In some parts of the world, it can even compete with old coal plants, meaning that it's it's <laughs> make economic sense to close down an old coal plant to move into solar. And remind yourself, I'm you're in the United Kingdom. The Industrial Revolution happened in the United Kingdom. Why was that? Well, most scholars will agree. It was because the United Kingdom has an, had an abundance of coal and had waterways to take the coal around. Added, it may have a favorable political system of the time. But for 100, 200 years, the UK was completely dependent on coal. Now, coal is gone. I mean, it's less than 2% of the energy mix in the UK, and in the next year or two, it will be complete, completely gone because it makes economic sense to make the shift into wind and solar and all, all the renewables. So that's why we are with this, with this turning point. Up to now, there was a choice to be made. I mean, either you want to develop or you want to take care of Mother Earth. And most people wanted to develop. Now, there's no contradiction between economy and ecology. You can do all the same with win-win policies, which are good for the economy and good for the environment. Yeah, I guess a big challenge as well is also that we live in a, in a obviously in a global state system that has borders that are man-made, but all of our 
most of our environmental problems such as climate change are global at scale um, so then there's obviously a challenge how do we um, govern for that sustainability um, within those global commons and how do we address the challenge of kind of working together um, across nations and across the world to to address that um, I don't know what what are your thoughts on this when I started being involved with climate talks um, in the 2005-2006, uh, the view in Europe basically was, uh, and, and in the US at the time, how can we convince the Indians and the Chinese that they, they need to act on climate? But of course the Chinese are not into climate because of us. They're into climate because it's a major factor uh, impacting upon the people of China. India for sure is much more vulnerable to climate change than Europe. Uh, and Prime Minister Modi takes a lot of interest in, in climate because of the people of India, not because you, you and me. But that also give, gives a lot of confidence that the world will move. And for most of this to happen, we don't need global agreements. Global agreements are very hard. I've been to, I don't know how many, maybe 10 climate uh, conventions like the, the one which would happen in Glasgow next year. Uh, and we have moved a few commas here and there. We have always declared victory. There have been some, some, some positive moves. But in the same time, the price of solar energy has fallen to less than 10% of the original price. So now it makes sense for any nation to move and take the right climate uh, nation without looking to everyone else, but simply for itself. Because if you want to develop India, yes, the easiest, the cheapest way to do it is by solar energy. And that's the big, big shift, which we couldn't really anticipate a few years back. Um, I think something I also wanted to talk about is, um, you know, the Global Climate Action Call today is also looking a lot at highlighting the effects uh, of climate change on most affected people and regions. And I think you already alluded to, obviously, in the past, there was a lot of discussion around between development and um, sustainability, but also looking at, like, how can we address that climate justice? Um, and yeah, what would you say um, some of the most critical things world leaders should pay attention to when addressing climate justice and sustainable development um, at a global scale? Because I think there's definitely a responsibility of um, a lot of nations, specifically in Europe um, and the whole global north, that of taking action and of supporting um, other areas and most affected areas and developing nations. Of course, it's a completely unfair world where those who have not contributed at all or hardly at all to global emissions are suffering the most from the emissions. Uh, uh, the people living on, say, the Pacific Islands or coastal areas of Bangladesh, just to give a couple of examples, are, of course, not the culprits of, of, of climate emissions, but they will pay, pay the price. So there is a need to support and help all those areas in particular need. Then there is an issue in the developed nation also about just transition. Uh, take the United States of America as an example. There are now five times more jobs in the US in the solar industry than in coal. Still, people allow the president to run around to speak as if there are most jobs are in coal. It's a completely lie, it's completely nonsense. There are, <laughs> the jobs are in the solar industry, adding in coal, it's much cleaner jobs, much more jobs for women. It's much better in any way. However, that may not be the perspective of the coal miner in Kentucky or West Virginia who has lived his life, and normally some man, through coal. And then you need to add systems uh, for just transition so that those people who may have a personal loss 
from the changes which are needed for everyone uh, can be compensated and helped. As an example, in China, I visited the Chinese version of Uber. They had a specific program for coal miners uh, to be helped in the transition by taking a job in the, this Uber company as a driver until they could find uh, and maybe get some help from the government to get better jobs. So definitely we need to look into both the global uh, uh, fairness and the just transition even in societies which are rich like say the United Kingdom or Germany or, or, or the United States. Um, what would you say, I mean, speaking about economics and our economic system, do you think we need to really rethink some of our economic system, um, particularly, I guess, there's a notion of um, growth and development a lot. Um, and obviously, eternal growth on a finite planet is impossible. But like, how do we how do we address that um, in our global system? I tend to disagree with those who believe that we should go for kind of zero growth. I think growth is possible and growth is needed to bring everyone out of poverty, uh, but it needs to be a different sort of growth. I mean, a, a circular economy where you reuse and recycle, but that does also create jobs and in income and, uh, and in that uh, way growth. Um, and because what, what I'm uh, started with, I mean, the, the complete new uh, kind of uh, idea of win-win, you can have economic development and uh, uh, taking care of Mother Earth with the same policy, sustainable tourism, economic uh, um, uh, change into renewables are example of, of areas where you, you have you, you have both economic development and uh, and uh, um, and, uh, and uh, take care of the ecology. However, there is one real big flaw with the present capitalist system, and that is that the, the benefits of destroying nature uh, are privatized, while the costs of destroying nature are socialized. I mean, an individual, a company, even sometimes even a country may have some benefit of destroying nature, but the cost will be paid by the taxpayers or by the global community or by future generations. And that's a, that's a systemic failure which need, need to be fixed. Yeah, I, I, I also think sort of there's ways, I guess, of I mean, I always like that example of people, humans saying, well, as, as we grow up, we sort of have to develop and at the start we grow. And then when we reach a certain age, we don't grow anymore, but we'll still grow in other ways. So I think maybe looking into ways that how we as a global community can still grow, but maybe not in resources use, because I mean, in the end, we only have so many resources. Um, but yeah, like you said, circular economy is definitely um, very interesting and good things to look into from an economic perspective. Um, I, if I just allow me to interrupt, a circular economy is a must. It's a must for resource perspective, for the economic perspective and for climate. I mean, it gives no meaning that we buy a new phone or a new iPad or computer every year because we want some new tech device which has come there and then we just throw it away. That must stop. Uh, but then the, the say the, the phones and the computers maybe have to be made from the beginning with the perspective or reuse, either reuse or recycling of the materials. You cannot add the circularity at the end of the production process. It must be designed with the ID or recycling. That's exactly the same with plastics. Uh, we should avoid uh, food uh, food loss, but in every, and I mean, 99% of all clothes we make are thrown away. 
quite a good number of them after being used five or six times by the, by the customers. It gives no meaning. Why don't we design so that we can reuse the cotton or the rayon or what is the material in the in the clothing? Yes, I definitely agree because there's just, if you look at the amount of waste that is created um, daily by humans and the things that are thrown away, there needs to be some sort of different way to, I guess, value value that system as well and value what we have. Um, but I think, why do you think it's so difficult for us as a society kind of to understand the devastating effect that um, of, of climate change and of what's happening on our natural resources and our economy? Um, let's say because, I mean, climate change also really deeply impacts um, our economy um, as we see COVID is impacting the economy. So how is it that yet, despite that, obviously being aware that that it, all of this is looped so i guess we can't really escape from the planet and from these problems why is it do you think that um, economic concerns seem to be prioritized over everything without regard to the environmental cost i think uh, as environmentalists we should also discuss whether we have some responsibility for this uh, misunderstanding because quite a good number of people uh, in many nations tend to see climate change as something affecting someone else Mm. Yes, it will affect people in the Africa and in Pacific Islands, but it may not affect my life in Norway or, or your life in, in, in Scotland. Uh, so you need to set it out as a close to home issue. And I think also I'm not sure that the idea of scaring people into action works. I think it's much easier to inspire people into action and show them that, uh, that uh, it works and that, that there is no longer any choice to be made between environment and jobs you i mean we, we can get both environment and better health better life more exciting lifestyles and betting better uh, jobs and economy with the same policies if you set up the choice between economics and environment uh, you will always have a good number of people who will make the choice for the economics and that's a, in my view it's a thing of the past it was like that in the 19th century and long into the 20th century but in the 21st century, not at all. <laughs> we have all the policies and all the technologies for do both good for the environment and for jobs and prosperity at the same time. So then what would you say is sort of the role of individuals in bringing about that larger system change? And I guess that paradigm shift in valuing um, what we have differently and seeing it differently that we have to, obviously our choices need to be made from an environmental perspective. Number one is to make certain that every nation uh, elect decent green leaders. Uh, so if you are an American, to so make sure that you make the right choice on third uh, on uh, November 3rd, because at the end of the day, uh, the individual uh, can do in his in your mind personal life, he can do something, but that it's the political decisions which drives the agenda. Secondly, to influence business. Uh, 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 meaning that when you buy something, if you buy an electrical car, you, well, you make the market wider for electrical cars and, and, and then business is noticing uh, and it's changing the market. And of course, adding to the public opinion, which put pressure on both political leaders and, uh, and business. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi once said, which is very well known, that um, you need to be the change you want to see. And obviously it helps if you also try to live up to what to expect from others, but we should not focus on kind of making people saints. Uh, it's good if people move to, into more a more vegetarian diet, it will help, 
but don't finger point to people who have some meat. It's good if people drive less, but don't finger point to those uh, who drive. Make it easy to shift into electric mobility. Make cities move cities so that you can more easily bicycle. Because if you are finger pointing to people, at the end of the day, very few people like to be finger pointed at. Uh, and you will pu push people away from you rather than bringing them on board for the good cause. So then what would you say? How, how can we engage the people who are not engaged? I think it's, I mean, obviously you need to show the seriousness uh, of uh, what, what climate change will make uh, and uh, what, it will, what impact it will have on uh, the planet if we destroy more nature and, and, and um, make different species go extinct. But on that basis, you need to engage on the positive message. How can we create a fantastic win-win situation which makes your city greener, more more likable, where you can have a better life, where your children can grow up? I mean, in my, people tend to have a negative view. I mean, take my city, Oslo. When I was a child here, there was nothing like we see today. Now it's a green city. You can go everywhere along the coast. You can go bathing. That time it was all polluted. No one would go for a swim in the Oslo Fjord. We have a city river passing through the town. My, my mother constantly warned me, no, 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 don't go there. It's just for, for drunk people, not for, not for anyone else. Now it's the oasis of the city with any number of, of, of restaurants, I mean, any number of universities, by the way, and high schools. So there is a, this green transformation of cities have a lot of appeal. So focus on a positive message and what you can win from making uh, the climate a big issue. By the way, when Joe Biden announced uh, his climate plan, which is an amazing plan, he has promised to make 2,000 uh, th billion American dollars, two trillion American dollars, that's a, that's a vast amount of money available uh, for renewable energy. But when he made the speech, he didn't focus on the climate Armageddon, the climate collapse. He focused on the opportunities, how this can be an enormous opportunity uh, for the people. I once discussed this particular matter with, um, uh, with uh, uh, Schwarzenegger, which you may know, the, the Terminator. And he said, he said, if I go to the people in Iowa, one of the states on the prairie in the United States, and tell them, oh, 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 oh there will be uh, sea level rise in Florida, he said no one will take an interest at all. However, if I tell the people of Iowa that we have the wind resources of the world here in Iowa, this can be a pioneer in, the, in wind power, creating any number of green jobs for the people of Iowa, all of a sudden oh, everyone uh, take, uh, get my attention. So focus to move from this relatively negative vision of many environmentalists into a much more positive win-win vision. I think it is actually also quite um, inspiring to see that if we do leave nature um, and if we do look at restoring nature, it can come back really amazingly. Um, like you said, sometimes with rivers or areas that were polluted and then now transformed into new environment if they're given space to do so. Um, so that's that's definitely um that has been one of the great views of the COVID-19, I mean, as bad as the disease has been. But I mean, penguins walking through the streets of, of Cape Town, bears coming into the streets of Barcelona. American environmentalists said that American national parks have a bonanza party of wildlife uh, during this time. 
in Thailand, elephants were coming out in the streets. I mean, it's been a really a fantastic experience for many people. In northern India, which where the cities have been, are some of the most polluted in the world, all of a sudden people could see Himalayas. They haven't been able to see the Himalayas for at least two or maybe three decades. Now they can see it. So, it, and I think people have get a taste for something which they want to take into the future. Yeah, indeed. Um, but what would you say, what, what should we do with, with those who, who deny global climate change? Basically ignore them. Um, for the very simple reason that there are very few uh, and are not the main problem for any political action. I mean, the main problem for political action are, I mean, we have, a, we have maybe one or two climate deniers among global politicians like Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and Mr. Trump. Uh, two, they are leading big and important nations, but nearly every leader in business and politics all over the world accept that climate change is real and want to do something. What's the difficulty is that people are risk averse, they're not brave, they tell you that yes, we need to act on climate, but not today. Tomorrow, uh, we don't need to act decisively, uh, but slowly and uh, not, uh, not uh, determinedly. So I, I, I'm not really concerned with the climate deniers. I'm much more concerned with those who accept climate change but want to postpone action. Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes maybe too much voice is also given or attention paid to, to climate deniers. Where in actual fact, we should just be focusing on 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 all the actually the consensus that there is globally on climate change and trying to get some action. Because yeah, I do agree. It's a problem. It's a problem of time, and it's a problem of. Um, Making sure that we we don't do too we don't want it to have too little too late basically, um, but we were just talking about COVID or you were just talking and I think maybe I'd be really interested to hear more about like what do you think has this time taught you personally and what do you think should it teach the world? It has uh, number one taught the world that uh, political leadership matters a lot, and when you see good political leadership, people are ready to follow. Uh, I just compared, uh, I don't want to speak negatively about the United Kingdom, but if you compare United Kingdom or basically most nations of Europe with East Asia, it's a huge difference. Uh, there are about 42,000 uh, COVID-19 dead in the United Kingdom, and there is less than 400 in South Korea. Population is more or less the same. So there's 100 times more dead in the uh, United Kingdom than in South Korea. And uh, the UK has 200 times more dead per capita than China, more than 600 times more dead per capita than Vietnam. And these are different systems, and uh, some of them are democratic, some of them are more authoritarian in Asia, but all of them have had a political decisive leadership to set the rules, uh, ask people to follow, and people have followed. Also in Europe, of course, Chancellor Merkel has been a remarkable leader in, in this, and the German people, by and large, have followed her, her leadership. So it's a proven model when political leaders take action, and even, even action which has a huge impact on people's daily life. People are ready to follow as soon as it's logical and they, they, uh, are, uh, they understand uh, why. So I think we will be, and there seems to be a very strong desire to build back better, as you also said, after the COVID-19. Uh, it's very visible in business and states in America, even if Trump is uh, not on that uh, in that boat as, as yet. And it's visible in the European Union and, and visible in Asia. Uh, and of course, China is particularly important. 
Um, yeah, I also think you were just really mentioning there, of course, were a lot of positive outcomes as well, that sort of nature coming back at the beginning of um, the lockdown that happened globally. Uh, but then that also obviously changed again once uh, business went went back. Um, and yeah, I think how how do we address some of that in terms of like, obviously we need to we couldn't have we couldn't like I mean that's part it's impossible the world couldn't just halt and say okay we're not going to do anything so it needs to come sort of back but um, do you think that despite that even now like the emissions obviously back up to where they were the world is learning something from from this time? I think in the west we should be a little bit more humble and accept that the East Asian nation not only they have much fewer dead but they've also done much better from a business perspective. Uh, in China, uh, business is now completely back to normal. Uh, China is the only major economy which will have economic development uh, this year, and they will be a huge, huge part of the global growth in, the, in this period. South Korea, uh, uh, again, they had much less severe lockdown than the United Kingdom or, 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 or most other European nations. Just it was much more effectively done, uh, much more purposely done. Uh, so, so they had less economic impact and less dead at the same time. So we, we should be a little bit more humble when we when we uh, look into our political systems how, how how they can how they can improve. But overall, the lessons is strong. If you have strong, effective states, uh, states have been strengthened during the uh, uh, Corona crisis. That that may have positive, but it may also have some negative effects like. Uh, some uh, oppressive states may also have been strengthened, but overall straight states have been uh, very much strengthened and people are uh, understanding that you, you need a strong state to uh, to uh, defend uh, defend its people. So from, from all of this, do you, what, what do, where do you see sort of change coming from? Um, who, who's leading the change and where, where do you see it coming from? What do you think what gives you the most hope in terms of where change is coming from? On climate change is now mainly, mostly coming from business, uh, and that's very simple. It's a lot of money to be made if you make the right uh, shifts, and it's also a lot of happy customers and staff. I mean, companies who turn into green have a, have a very easy time uh, to recruit people. I mean, in, here in Norway, there are frankly very very few students now who want to study anything related to oil. Why is that? People believe it's the past, uh, and there are uh, and the number of students on on different studies which are related to the to the future economy. So the shift in business cannot be underestimated, and of course this is most visible in the U.S. because Trump is not on that path, uh, but all the main tech companies are there. Not and when Trump uh, uh, told took the United States out of the Paris Agreement. It was not one American company, not even the oil companies, raising its hand and saying, we, we, we agree with you, Mr. President. They all said, we disagree. This is not the future. We need to go in another direction. So you see this enormous shift coming in business. And since the forces of business is so strong, that will have an enormous, enormous impact. And you see it basically everywhere in the world. Mm. So, I mean, I guess as, as young students and people, what would you encourage us to do in a time that is so critical for 
our future survival on Earth, because I guess in many ways it's also overwhelming to look at what's happening and to realize how much this affects our future. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes there's a question of like, what can we do and what should we be, what should we be doing to secure our future? Remember that uh, all major political movements in history has been driven by young people, uh, and the, the power of shifting uh, perspectives and shifting society is enormous. Just one example: I mean, uh, until uh, 200 years back, slavery was normal everywhere in the world. Christian priests said this is in the Bible. Mullah said this is in the Quran. And the number of UK economists at the time said that the, the British Empire will go down and under if we don't have slaves. Then a few young people in London raised their hands. They were Christian. They raised their hands and said, but is this really in the Bible? Is this really true that we need to continue with slaves? Isn't this immoral? And then they started a movement which of course completely transformed the world. Uh, today, yes, there are some people living in slave-like circumstances in the poorest parts of the world. But there's not one place in the entire world where you can send the police to bring back your slaves like you could in Americas up to, until the up into, into the civil war. So that, that's just one example. I mean, the people who led the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, they were in the early 20s, they were teenagers or the early 20s. Martin Luther King, as we see as the old man, he was 38 when he died. And most of what he did, he was in the 20s and early 30s. And I can go on and go on. I mean, there are even two nations in the world where the founding father of the nation died at the age of 32. One is Ireland, where, of course, Michael Collins was killed at the age of 32. The other is Myanmar, where Aung San, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, also was killed at the age of 32. So never underestimate the power of young people when you have ideas and are brave to push for these ideas. Okay, thank you. I have a final question, but I think before I ask my final question, I'm going to refer to um, the chat because there have been quite a few questions that have come in um, from people to just um, put them forward as we were talking. And if anyone else has any questions, I think we have quite a bit of time to go to, um, through some of the questions. So that's exciting. Um, I'm going to read um, them out. Um, unless someone, they will, the people want to say them themselves, you can also raise a hand and, and ask them. Um, but the first question is from Claire, and she's asking, um, how do you think um, change can be enacted? How can we as individuals help guide our current society towards a circular, more sustainable economy? Uh, I think I mean, it always helps to look into what you can do in your private life. I mean, we don't need to throw away uh, food in the way we are tend to do now. I mean, my grandmother, I can't think she threw, threw away anything because at the time the, everything had some value. Uh, even my mother, you could, she could hardly accept. I mean, she would eat anything <laughs> even when it uh, was very, very old because it was against her principles to, to throw away anything. Now, of course, my generation and the younger generation, we are throwing away everything. So looking into whether we can do better in our own life helps. But at the end of the day, only, only change at the society scale is uh, sufficient. And that's you need to make demands. You need to tell Apple, please make a phone or Samsung or wherever you buy it, uh, make a phone uh, which can be uh, recycled. And tell all the plastic companies and all those Unilevers and Nestleers who put plastic into the market that we can't accept this. I mean, you put the plastic into the market, 
you must be responsible also for removing it from the market and make sure that it's recycled. That's polluted pay principle, which we use for so many other good purposes, but we need to introduce the polluted place principle for plastic and uh, actions by individuals can put pressure on such a, such a movement. So act in your own life, but mainly act in, in society and with business. Yeah, I think there is a large power if especially um, citizens and consumers come and say, well, this is not acceptable. Um, but it does need to be like, again, I think, like I said at the beginning, most of these things aren't really ha just handed in a silver plate. They need to be demanded for as well. Um, the next question I have is from Eleni. Um, and it's, I'm just going to read it out. That's a great point about postponing action, even when realizing it's necessary. But some leaders would argue that they are facing much more eminent problems and cannot afford to introduce new measures at the moment. For example, this is an issue the EU is currently facing to hit the climate neutrality target by 2050. How can we ensure there's a just transition for all countries and their citizens? Yeah, there, there is no way we can assure that everyone, everything is benefiting everyone in the similar way at the same time. So you have to accept that there will be some, some, some hiccups. Uh, but I, I think uh, the issue about distraction in politics is very essential. Because uh, when I met UK politicians over the last few years, it's all about the Brexit, night and day. Uh, it gives very few calories left for, for handling climate change. And other, while that's an extreme example, still in some other parts of the world, uh, there are distractions. Then by far the most that devastating uh, potential distraction is in the conflict between China and the United States. That must be uh, avoided at all costs because that will consume the entire world. I mean, some Americans are entertaining the idea that we should decouple the world into one Western and one Eastern sphere, one US-led and one China-led sphere. That's very dangerous. It will make all of us much more, much poorer. So a negative impact on trade, but it will also be devastating for the, for the environment. So to don't speak negatively about China and the West. Don't speak negatively about the US in, in China uh, and try to make sure that uh, we, we can work together. So yes, we, we need to try to avoid uh, uh, the distractions and so we can focus on what, what's the defining issue of our time. And that is to take better care of Mother Earth. Thank you. Um, the next question um, is from David Satchfield and he asked, um, you mentioned global growth. Do you think a global degrowth economic system could work? Short answer is no. Uh, and for two main reasons. Uh, number one, uh, true, there is an upper middle class like uh, most Germans and most Norwegians and most uh, Brits, uh, but that's still a small part of, the, of humanity. I mean, there is a big global lower uh, lower middle class with billions uh, of people, and there's still as maybe a billion of extreme poor. All of for all the extreme poor and for the lower middle class, it's very very hard to believe that you can have a have a have a have an 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 attraction if you ask them to to suffer. Uh, so, it, it, and, and secondly, we don't have any economic model at the moment which makes the economy go forward in a real way uh, without um, without um, uh, without growth. And look to the real issues. I mean, we we can do a lot with new technologies. We just need to 
uh, we, we need to, um, to regulate the market so that we get in these new technologies much, much faster. National trade, for instance, can now be run by ships, which are in the very near future. Some can be fueled by sails, new modern way of doing sailing. A Swedish shipping company have introduced, a, which will carry uh, uh, cars across the Atlantic with sails. Uh, very soon uh, in my country, Norway, we now have, have a huge amount of new electric ferries because of good government regulations of the market. And of course, electric ferries can be, do a lot of the domestic traffic in most countries. Very soon, we can move also into electric ships, which can maybe even in the future be fueled by windmills uh, flo floating in the oceans uh, so that you don't need to go into a port. Uh, for this to happen, you need business and you need governments to regulate market. And all this will be seen as growth, it will create new jobs, uh, we create prosperity for the people working in all these sectors. And that's the that's the growth we, we need, because we need to move into new sort of growth. But I think uh, the idea of no growth is not inspiring anyone, or at least very few, uh, and it's not workable. Thank you. So the next question is from Timo, and it's um, how can we ensure that green energy and sustainable infrastructure replaces rather than supplements current energy consumption? Uh, we need to support in any possible way the renewable energies, and we need to put a high price on on the uh, on coal in particular and uh, and uh, the non-renewable energies. That then I mean to let, let it to the market, but uh, kind of regulate the market so that the, the, the green energy gets a premium. And sometimes you need an introductory offer. I can give you one example again from Norway. We have the, by far the highest number of electrical vehicles in, in the world. Half of all cars uh, sold in Norway now are electric. Why is that? Well, the government decided that if you want this change to happen, uh, you need to make an introductory offer because it's hard to be the first customer of electric cars. You want to see it work with your neighbors before you, you buy it yourself. And then we allowed uh, electric vehicles to run in the bus lanes and we changed the tax system so that electric vehicles be became cheaper relative to the combustion um, engine cars. And that worked fantastically well. And it's just a few years into the future, I think all, all cars sold in Norway will be electric. Uh, so this is just an example of how government policies uh, can, can, can help. But market forces will also help. I mean, Volkswagen just said that they would sell the last um, uh, diesel car by 2026. But then you should ask people who want to be the last person buying a car. Uh, do you think you will get the spare parts? You think you will have petrol stations selling diesel all over Europe and you are the last person running around with that car? Uh, which points to that when first when change starts, it tends to be very, very fast. And that made me think as well, what, what is your um, opinion on, uh, I mean, this is my question, but I just, from what you were speaking, what is your opinion on um, carbon pricing and schemes like carbon taxing? I think they are very useful. Uh, it has served those nations well who has introduced them, uh, but they have been very, very difficult to get a global system. And, I was um, given the role as so-called facilitator for market, which is was called in some of the climate talks a few years back. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that to go for a global trading system, which would include both Europe, United States, China, and maybe other uh, main, uh, main emitters, 
was simply impossible. There was not a political was not a political sellable product. Uh, so we, we should aim at a strong European system where the price should increase and a similar Chinese system. Uh, and e even if nothing has happened in real terms, a good number of even Republicans in the US have advocated that uh, this is a good way forward for, for the United States. I think, I think it's good, but of course we can now have a lot of progress even without it because so there's simply the forces of the market are moving in the direction of the renewables. Mm. So more looking at more at a regional system for something like that yeah, uh, yeah I, mean, I can give i mean one really successful vehicle which we used in norway i mean i don't sort of bother you with many norwegian examples but uh, 10 years back we realized that we were far behind on nox emissions in norway uh, we had not lived up to our global uh, promises on nox then we then the minister of finance said let's put a levy on nox and then, of course, all the ship owners said, no, 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 very dangerous. We will be out of business. And all the fishing, fishing fleets said, no, 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 we can't catch the, fi uh, the fish if, if you do that. So don't do that. Then we did something much more innovative, which I think is a model which can basically be used everywhere. We put a levy on NOx, but every single kroner coming from that levy is kept in the system and used for technological innovation in the uh, in the same uh, same uh, fleet which means that if you pollute more well you pay more if you move very very fast into electrical ferries for instance you will pay less so it's a double premium you pay less you get more if you do the right thing and that has been enormously effective bringing down NOx but also bringing down CO2 and emissions and we have we are introducing new electrical ferries in Norway basically now every every week uh, and the people in these companies say, oh, that's so, it's fantastic. Our staff is so proud. We <laughs> have less incidents. Uh, they can go back to their, to their wives and husbands and tell them I, I'm contributing to a better world. So it has so many good effects when you make this change happening. But you need sometimes the role of the government and the state to regulate markets for it to happen. Thank you. Um, the next question is from um, Tamsim. What is the best way to streamline technology development globally in order to avoid gaps where where is the balance between private and public efforts most of the uh, technological uh, change will happen in private companies uh, of course i mean the big tech companies like the, the, the i mean the I mean the 10 biggest tech companies in the world are now all either in southern china or at the west coast of the united states so they are not everywhere in the world uh, so the, these tech companies will of course have a major role to play because digitalization will have will uh, have a, a huge impact. And then of course there are any number of companies starts up of different sort, working on hydrogen, working on electric mobility, etc., etc. So business will be the driving engine for the technological change. But sometimes, so quite often, you need the government to frame the market for this to happen fast enough. Because it's not economical for the individual actor to change if not um, the, the wider market is changing. Most uh, environment markets are by nature um, framed by, by governments. I mean, look to the biggest success story maybe of environment legislation. That is the hole in the ozone layer. That was the biggest environment issue when I started in politics in the 1980s. Then very conservative political leaders like Thatcher and Reagan come together and made the Montreal Protocol which put a stop to this 
And then of course it made an enormous business opportunities, not like the air conditioning business or the world has gone out and got out of steam. It's doing much, much better than any time, just using new and other chemicals. So if governments are framing markets, business will do the trick of making the innovations and they will happen at a very rapid speed. Yeah, I think the no, next no, question. No, last yeah. week, for instance, Airbus said that they will now work on hydrogen for the airplanes. Others are working on electric airplanes. And again, if the government make introductory offers, frame the markets, use the power of purchasing for these companies, it may happen faster than the companies say. I think the next question links quite well because it's um, it's by um, Derek and it says, um, you've quite rightly spoken a lot about the role of business. We're part of a university, not a business, but still a large-ish um, organization, which is a substantial environmental impact. How can universities contribute to positive environmental action? And what would you, uh, would you suggest should um, we be pushing our university leaders to do? Yeah, I think you will know this better, but uh, <laughs> basically working on everything at the same time, working on the curri curriculum, trying to learn all the trades which you believe you would need to know, uh, to understand the, the, the world as it is in the 21st century, both understand society, but of course understand uh, technology and natural sciences. Work on the spare time, making extinction rebellion or, or, or manifestations like which put pressure on political leaders. Universities, of course, quite often are also have quite big endowments which can be used in different ways. They may have pension funds which are investing. Uh, so that I think there is any number of ways of using university as a vehicle for the, the good transformation of the of the world. And historically, of course, also in basically every nation, universities have been the core of the national consciousness and uh, and uh, um, core, core of, the, of the nation. So universities has a huge role to play in the, also in the future. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot, I think, for, from what I would say that that can happen. And it's it's also a global hub for people to come together and learn. So it's a lot, I think, that could go out and inspire action more globally. Next, next year, hopefully we can meet again. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is also very relevant. Um, it's by Lucy Jackson. Um, and as the question says, um, at the moment, plastic waste is not seen as an important issue um, as COVID. How can we fix the growing current problem of single use plastic waste, masks and PPE? Can we deal with COVID without consuming single use plastic? Plastic menace is a huge issue. It should not be delegated as a kind of small environment issue. It's it's horrible for wildlife. I mean, a whale was dying earlier this year in, in Thailand. It was vomiting plastic bags while, while dying. Seabirds are diving down, even feeding the chicks with, with plastic, mixing it up with, with food. So it's very bad for the animal kingdom. It's very, very bad for humans. Uh, we are we are breeding a lot of small plastic fragments, microplastic and nanoplastics. Uh, we are getting it from fish, from water. Uh, True, we don't know uh, the exact impact on, on human health at the moment. A lot of research is going on, but no one has suggested that this is good for us. And it's an economic problem in, in Bali, in Indonesia, that they found it as a core economic threat to Indonesia. Because, I mean, where are, the, where are the divers or swimmers who want to go to Bali to, to swim in a soup or plastic? So uh, it's a huge issue. Uh, and it has been exacerbated by COVID-19 because a number of the health products we need have been uh, been with plastics. Very, very briefly, there are three answers. Uh, we need to 
we need to prohibit the plastic items we don't need. That's what the European Union is doing now. We don't, I mean, we don't need straws, do we? Can't we drink straight from the straight from the cup as we have done through throughout the millenniums in the, in the world? And we may not need balloons. We can have fun without balloons. So there are, there are a number of items we can simply we can simply uh, dismiss. Then we should look for alternative products made from cassava or potatoes. And then finally, we need at scale to move into a recyclable economy, which is material recycling of the plastic or turning the plastic into diesel or other products which can which can be can be used for a good good purpose. All this is feasible. It will need government regulations, uh, but the industry, if the, if it's regulated, will deliver deliver the products. And don't let don't don't let those companies who do something small fool you. Uh, if you if Coca-Cola tells you that they are running a project in an Indian village, uh, please tell them that that's good. But remind them that there are 700,000 villages in India, so they need to work uh, at a completely different scale. Mm. They're able to do it. Uh, and if they are pressure, pressurized to do it, they, they will do it. But we need really big scale recycling, not sm these small uh, village type uh, things. I mean, not nothing wrong with that for sure, but that, that cannot resolve the problem. Yes, I know we have like, quite a lot of questions, but we're running out of time. It's okay if we ask like two, two, take two more questions. Um, there's one um, from Tanas. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Sorry if not. Uh, many countries promise to reach climate neutrality by 2050. Do you think that is a target um, sufficient before we cause irreversible damage to our planet? For example, to um, according to some sources, my city Bangkok would be underwater by then. We need to move very fast, and I tend to be more interested in what governments and businesses are doing now uh, than the targets for 25 or 30 years into the future. Because unless they start working on these targets, uh, you will end up in 2050 with new targets for 2075 or, or 2100, where at least I, I will not be, uh, be around. So unless you see someone setting a target with a plan for how to implement it starting today or yesterday, uh, don't be too confident. But still, it's good uh, and uh, people are moving in the right direction. And also, when it comes to the negatives, we should also remind ourselves that the states are much stronger than they were, even in the poorest parts of the world. Just give you one example. I mean, India had the biggest cyclone uh, or one of the biggest cyclones in modern times last year. It hit in the state of Odisha, which is one of the poorest states in India, and only 10 people died. Why? Well, they have a functioning weather forecasting system, which was absolutely precise. The chief minister of the state set up bus, bus systems and others to bring people away from the from the epicenter. And no one died after the catastrophe from hunger or diseases, which were the main dangers in, in, in the past. So states like Thailand uh, are much stronger, much better prepared and will be able to do more uh, to help the people of Bangkok. Uh, but so it's a kind of race Mother Earth is hitting back hard because we are not treating her well. States are becoming better, but we should we should reduce the burden on the state by making sure that we are not moving that we, that we are speeding down on the on the climate uh, emissions. Finally, I have a question from Noah. Um, you mention electric cars quite often, but don't we need to move away from the personal automobile and make infrastructural changes that incentivize biking, walking, and public transport? 
Absolutely. Uh, there is no way a um, functioning modern city can work on the basis of electrical vehicles. It must be public transit system, uh, uh, which uh, is, the, is the core. Uh, that's, of course, the case in most UK cities and most European cities. And, uh, uh, but people still want to have an electrical vehicle to go to see grandmother or to go for, uh, for holidays and in, in other ways. Uh, so, so it will be a combination, but the main uh, main mode of transport must be public transport. The good news here is, of course, China. Uh, first time I visited China, there was one metro line in China. That was line number one in Beijing. Now the metro system in Beijing and Shanghai are the two biggest in the world, and there are more than 30 cities in China with metro systems. China added has 99% of all electric buses in the world. I mean, taste that number, 99% of all electric buses in one country. There are many, many more electric buses in the city of Shenzhen alone than there is in Europe and America combined. Uh, so, but the good news is, of course, if this can happen in, in China, it can happen in Europe, it can happen in India, it can happen everywhere else, as long as the government is really moving the forces in the right direction. 70% of all high-speed rail in the world is now in China. If you had had Chinese-style trains in the UK, of course, the time from St. Andrews to London would be less than two hours, maybe one and a half by train. Yeah, train to public. Trains that, are great. I think it's also that, there's a lot of potential. That, this guy is absolutely right. The number one issue is public transport system, but adding to that, we need electrical vehicles to replace the, the old-fashioned combustible vehicles. And of course, we need we need electric uh, uh, aircraft or hydrogen aircraft. Uh, it's a fantasy that the world can do without uh, flying. And we need also to realize, I, I, have, I don't know the number, but there is now 1.3 billion people in India Let's assume that 50 million of them have ever been into an aircraft. That means there's 1 billion 250 million people in India who has never been into an aircraft until they all, all also want to be in an aircraft one day. So we need to move into a new, better technology for this to be at all possible. Well, um, we're coming towards the end of today's interview. I know there are more questions, but thank you to everyone who did ask questions. Um, my final one for today is what gives you hope and any final messages you would like to share with us? I think um, I've basically pointed to what gives me hope. Uh, it's the fact that last year a huge number of young people were mobilized all over the world in a completely new fashion, really putting climate change high on the agenda. And it also impacted upon the European elections. You saw Green parties winning in, in a completely new way all over Europe. For sure, that was a reflection of this uh, movement among young people. And to see how this movement has now moved into business, where the core decision makers, I mean, the people the people now sitting at the, uh, at the leadership of Apple and Microsoft, these are, of course, the Rockefellers and Carnegie of our age, the most powerful business leaders anywhere. Uh, and they have taken the green message to heart. Uh, and they, they want to run with it, for sure. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been a really insightful, um, interesting discussion. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for tuning in virtually into St Andrews. I hope sometime in the future you'll be able to come and uh, visit St Andrews in person. Um, I would love to. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. Thank you for everyone who tuned in and for asked questions. 
um, and participated as well. I know in St Andrews we can't really do much um, from a climate action perspective in terms of protests or anything, but um, I know we've we've done like our virtual messages that we've sent in, we've done the sand art that's been happening. So there are ways that we can even in this time, I guess, make our voices heard. And I think we should definitely be be looking to do that because like I said at the beginning, change doesn't happen without us demanding and pushing for it. Um, so yes, thank you so much. Thank you, um, Eric, um, for your time, uh, for joining us today. Um, and everyone who tuned in. Dear listener, thank you so much for tuning in. This was a live audio recording of the video interview that I did with Eric Solheim on Friday the 25th of September. Um, I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, and I just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to Environment Subcommittee social media because that's um, on the YouTube account. You can also find the video form for this interview and other interviews and events that we're hosting. So really, I encourage you to follow our social media accounts on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, especially if you're a student in St. Andrews. Um, but also from if you're not, um, we're hosting quite a few events online this year. So maybe you have an opportunity to tune in for some of the exciting um, discussions and speakers that we're hosting. Um, so I just wanted to give a little shout out to Environment Subcommittee and the social media. And I wish you a beautiful day wherever you are. As always, be kind and take care.